brand is the sum of interactions, real and perceived, that a person has with the company across all touch points. So it means literally everything. And it's fascinating to me that people spend so much time putting this amazing consumer brand messaging out there, yet the consumers are smart enough to understand if your employees are not happy working for you, your product is probably not that great and your brand is probably not that great. I am Yekaterina Walter and I want you to steal my strategy. You're listening to Steal My Strategy, the show where we talk to smart people who invite you to copy, review, and remix practical ideas you can apply to life and business. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Well, Ekaterina, I have to tell you, I am anxious to steal your strategy. There are a lot of things about the work you've done, the books you've written, the things you teach that are fascinating to me. And I know everybody's going to learn a lot from you. So thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm uh, glad and privileged to be here, Robert. Well, I don't know if you're privileged to be here. I know I am privileged (laughs) to have you here. You know, it's really amazing to me. You got to tell me a little more about this because I saw that Fortune Magazine listed you as one of the most impactful people on social media alongside Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, Warren Buffett. I mean, come on. You got to tell me, how, how did you achieve this status? I have no idea, Robert. One day, somebody from uh, Fortune reached out and said, you're going to be on one of our lists. We need your headshot. <laughs> and, and that was it. So I'm assuming the list is somehow curated by referral. But uh, I, it just happened. There wasn't anything I really was. Uh, I did something for I aspired do. So I guess they just noticed my uh, engagement on social. Yeah, Well, it is quite impressive. And, you know, I think maybe one of the reasons is because you're such a good storyteller and you teach people how to tell stories. Visual storytelling is an example of what you do. Even have written some children's books. So you've taken that concept from business right, right all the way down to the classroom, right? That's right. My uh, daughter, who was eight at the time, and I have been making up stories for a long time. And you know, her seeing me publish my book, she one day walks in the room and says, you know, mom, I have an idea. We should publish one of the stories we made up. It'll be fun. Some other kids will like it. And I'm like, okay, great. This is a good learning and teaching moment. Let's do it. And so we did. (laughs) I love it. It's great. And it shows that you're a creative individual. I actually would ask you to tell me one of the children's stories, but I'm afraid maybe my listeners would say, hey, Robert, now, wait a second. I want business advice here. So, so I won't ask for that, but maybe maybe later we can uh, look those up and put them in the references for other people to find. I love it. I understand, Ekaterina, that you consider yourself an intrapreneur. I saw that, something you said in the past, you were quoted saying, what does that mean? Good question, Robert. I've always felt like I've been an entrepreneur kind of confided to a role I played. So I have my career zigzagged. I've done Fortune 500. I've done startups. I've done nonprofits. And so, and that's because I'm just natural learner. I love to acquire a variety of skills that gives me a broader picture of how to run business marketing, et cetera. And so, but what I've noticed is there is a breed within the companies. If you work for someone else versus create your own company like you have, you know, you kind of 
you have a breed of people that nobody identified of what it was. And I so started digging into it and I started reading. And there's a couple of folks in the industry a little while back that kind of coined the term intrapreneur. And those are folks who basically within the company, they love to take risks. They like to create roles that never existed before. They thrive in ambiguity and they lead innovation in new and interesting ways, which is not always easy. But but I've, I consider myself an entrepreneur because I've always pushed the limits and I've always, back when social was just a fad, there was a temporary, I think, like six months role when I was at Intel and people were like, you're crazy. Why would you leave a perfectly good role and take on six months rotation to then end up nowhere because it's not going to lead anywhere? And it led to just some amazing things. So, you know, I think we don't talk enough about intrapreneurship and that's the type of culture that businesses should look at fostering because there's way more of us out there. I love that. And, and you know, the expression entrepreneurship is very common. I don't think intrapreneurship is as common, but there's a lot of value in that for small business owners, especially if they have employees who think that way, they can drive their business forward much more successfully. I think there are probably a lot of our listeners though, they're, they, have a few employees. They, they are entrepreneurs because most financial advisors that we work with, they're independent business owners. If they want their employees to think like owners and drive innovation the way you've described, how do they create a culture that fosters this? You empower, right? You empower. And it's not just empower a person to try to define a role that is needed for the business at that point in time. But you also empower them sometimes with the budgets, right? So if you look at Real Carlton, right? I mean, this is a brand that is full of entrepreneurs. I mean, you could be swiping, you know, sweeping floors or you could be doing marketing for the company. It doesn't matter what you do, but each person is empowered, right? I mean, people who work at their hotels are given, hey, you have $2,000 to use at your discretion to make sure all of our customers are happy. I mean, that's an embodiment of empowerment, right? You empower your employees as a resource, and then you empower them financially to really make decisions that make your brand what it is. I mean, I mean, how amazing is that, right? So, so I think a lot of times kind of just let go a little bit and allow your people to shape and shape their roles and shape and pilot programs that you're not sure about, but based on data might come out to be the best thing that ever happened to you, right? So it all goes, goes back to great leadership, I guess. Yeah. So this is a little scary because now you're telling me, I'm going to give my employees my checkbook and let them run their own projects. Well, and you don't have to. It's not a lot of times I think it's not about money, right? It's not about money. It's about saying, you know, we want to take a chance on this idea, this program. And if somebody is passionate enough to lead it, let's see if it works. Let's prove that it works. And if it doesn't, you go back to the way you've always done it. I mean, what's the harm in doing it? And interestingly enough, in my career, Robert, a lot of pilots that I've done that end up being just phenomenal did not require money. It's just an ability for an employee to feel like, oh, I'm going to go try it. Even if it's on my own time for the company, I'm so passionate about it. Let me try it and see how it goes. And, and that's sometimes it's as little as that. That's, that's all it takes. I think, you know, nowadays people are so ingrained in structures and hierarchies and that this is, you know, we got we to gotta control everything. If we let go, something bad's going to happen. I think 
I think just a bit of opening your kimono and, and creating a culture where where people are a bit more vulnerable and people share ideas in a safe space where they don't feel like that's going to be held against them. That sometimes that's all it takes. And there's just some amazing things happen, really. Yeah, you're absolutely right, by the way. And I, what I said about being scared, I, personally, I'm not really scared. I know some of our listeners might be, but I, but I buy into this. And we, we actually have found that by doing that, with, when you have smart, motivated people and you give them the space to do that and you let them take ownership, you can move much faster because you're not the only one trying to come up with the ideas and execute. And then, yeah, a lot of things will fail, but you get comfortable with that. And the the benefits are far greater than the the failures. And a lot of times people's perspective when they're on the front lines is better than yours as the, the entrepreneur. It's easy to think you have all the answers, but when you let other people who are doing the work every day come up with things and, and innovate, it gives them a sense of pride. It helps them to... Uh, feel a sense of achievement inside the business and even re- potentially some rewards of that if you have good compensation structures for success. I agreed. I mean, I think Steve Jobs and a couple of others, really great business leaders said something to the effect of, hey, I hire people smarter than me, right? Why would I hire people like me? I hire people smarter than me and put them in a team and let them do what they need to do. And so there's nothing wrong as a leader with being humble and admit you don't, you're not great at something, but if you hire correctly and empower correctly to just move mountains. It's really, it's really, it's great. Yes, you can. And, you know, you actually mentioned a couple of business leaders I respect. You actually wrote a book as well. You've studied a number of business leaders. I think your book, Think Like Zuck, that's about Mark Zuckerberg, I assume, in your title. I haven't read it. I have to know. So I'm going to tell you that up front. But, but tell me, what can we learn from Mark Zuckerberg? Well, it's, you know, it's not just about Mark or Facebook as an example of sort of their first, you know, 10-ish years of of existence and how they build and scale that there's a lot of other entrepreneurs, right? Like Dyson and a lot of other smaller companies that are fascinating. Zappos is an example, always been an example in so many ways. I think it's all, you know, the book is focused around five P's of, of, of business, right? One of them is product, one of them is people. But it's, I think, what we can learn from how the businesses are built and scaled and how the cultures are created, that's always been fascinating to me. And so, you know, little things like when, and, and I know right now Zuckerberg is a big, big uh, controversial topic, but when you look at how he started, it was, it was just a lot of smart business. I mean, he refused to grow fast, even though the demand was there. He knew that if his product or his service is not going to really manage and meet the demand the way it should be, right? He's, he's just not going to be successful long term. So all the colleges wanted to join in, right? Because it all started with colleges and he held back and expanded very thoughtfully. I mean, little things like that really make sense, right? Especially currently in, in an environment where we're run, run, run. Oh my gosh, there's huge demand. Let's Let's go, even though Sometimes it's to the detriment of the long-term growth. So it's all about how to be thoughtful in how you build, how you build product, how you build your teams, how you build your culture. Yeah. So about that culture piece, a lot of the things you've already been sharing with us are about culture. When you look at some of these great brands that you just mentioned, what are the aspects of their culture that make them so great, that help them attract the right people and thrive? Because I know it's not just about processes. It's not just about products. Culture is so important. What What are some of the lessons that you think even small business owners can take away from those companies about how to build a great culture? 
you know, Zappos taught us that hierarchy is not as important as we think. I mean, these are the guys that it doesn't matter what role you have. You can go and talk about the company. We're not afraid that you're going to share something we're worried about, right? Go talk about the company. They, they empowered this whole layer of employee advocacy that's just swept the world, right? It, everybody loved buying from them. Everybody loved working for them. And if some of them didn't, they just, you know, they just left and went somewhere else. But they were not afraid. They were not scared of allowing storytelling to thrive, this organic storytelling from their customers, their employees, their partners, you know, to really get out there. I mean, talk about organic word of mouth brand building. It's insane, right? I mean, look at what Salesforce is doing. I mean, and right now, especially environment we're in, you got to stick to your gun. Salesforce is 20 plus year old company, and they've always had the four values that they have. They started with three and they added equality that's, you know, towards a couple of years in, they added one, but they never wavered. It was all about customer focus. You know, it was all about impact. It was all about, you know, equality and respect. And so the consistency of who you are as a company stays. And even if you have to go to bed, which Mark went, <laughs> went to bed on a lot of issues, you know, recently, you know, some political and, you know, issues around that are happening locally, you know, he, he really embodies, he sticks to those values and he never wavers. So, I mean, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and, and everywhere in between. And we know that, but it's the hardest thing to build. And I think the way you do it is you stick to your values and you grow your team and the company around those values and not be afraid to stand up for, for what you believe in, because that's who you are. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And you talk a lot about the authentic approach to taking a stand that empowers your brand. That's what you're talking about here, right? If it's not authentic, and if you're not willing to take a stand for it, then there's no power. But if the employees see it, feel it, believe it, act it, it amplifies brand. How does that relate to what you were talking about earlier with having brand ambassadors inside the company, storytellers out there where your employees are now actually becoming champions for your company? You know, I, um, in our last book, Jessica and I, my, my co-author, Jessica Jolie, and I wrote two books, one on visual storytelling, and our latest one was on laws of brand storytelling. So when, when we look at the definition of a brand, right, it could vary depending on who you are. But our very simple definition of a brand is a brand is the sum of interactions, real and perceived, that a person has with a company across all touch points. So it means literally everything. And it's fascinating to me that people spend so much time putting this amazing consumer brand messaging out there, yet the consumers are smart enough to understand if your employees are not happy working for you, your product is probably not that great. And your brand is probably not that great. So, you know, when you look at employee advocacy, there's the number of data points out there, but, but the one that I keep repeating over and over, and it's on the conservative side, is when your employees talk about their own experience with your brand and, uh, and how much they love and engage with your brand, that message carries eight to 10 times more impact and visibility and engagement than when your brand goes out there and says, oh, we're awesome. Look at us. We're so amazing. We have everything. Our brand is great. Our product is great. Nobody cares. You know, what people care about is the stories. And so I always say, tell don't sell. 
And so when you talk about storytelling, it could encompass anything. You know, your employee just jumps on LinkedIn and says, oh, man, you know, I've been really struggling with with postpartum depression because I gave birth to my child and my employer was there for me. And I'm just so grateful to work for such a company too. For example, hey, our product is insane. We in our household use it. And I'm telling you it's the best there is. Check it out, right? So it doesn't matter what message it is. But when you add that personal element or that storytelling element, the impact is immeasurable. And but a lot of times brand storytelling means us tooting our own horn to brands versus let our employees, partners, customers do the talking. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think there might be some fear. Oh yeah. That that businesses have about letting their employees do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Maybe their story doesn't get told right or in the controlled way they want. How do you overcome that fear? Oh man, you know, I've I've lived through that for so many years in different roles that I held. And the short answer is you cannot period in the story. Now, you can put together a guidelines. Hey, here's some things you should consider. So like when I was, um, when we were at Intel, we were very first, one of the very first together with Cisco and Dell and other and Adobe to sort of start looking at social for business and digital, becoming really digital transformation company. You know, we've put together pretty good policies and training and education for our own employees. I mean, I, I rolled out with, in a partnership with, with a couple of other colleagues, digital IQ training that didn't just teach you, well, here's why social is critical. Here's how you engage on it, but taught you do's and don'ts. Here's the things that happened to us. Here's what we did that you probably don't want to repeat. Here's the things that you need to consider. Here's how you represent the company if you want to be even a a sort of mini spokesperson. It's all about an education. The reality is, Robert, we cannot stop employees complaining about the company and the culture if they really want We just can't. But imagine if we let go of that fear and empower that our brand being built through the lens and identity of so many employees who most of them probably love working for us. So, you know, your brand identity isn't fixed, it's fluid. And if you stay true to who you are and your mission and everything you do, you have a chance to build on it consistently with your everyday stories and employees' everyday stories and you strengthen your brand. In the age of empowered consumer, your brand is not what you say it is. It's what they say it is. And that includes employees. That's right. Yeah. And empowered consumer is true. Empowered employees is true too. And how often do we see it, right? Company mistreats employees. It makes big news. And if you're in, even in a small business in a small town, that can be very damaging, even, even more so at times. Yeah. So create the right environment, empower people, make sure they love being there and let them tell the story in their own way. I think that's a great lesson. If you don't mind me building a little bit on that is, you know, there is different type of storytelling, right? There's macro stories and there's micro stories. So macro stories are the why, the foundation and the reason for everything your company does. And especially if you're a small business, your community will know that and should know that, right? What's your founding story? What what is it that you want to do or be in that community? But, But when you look Look at these sort of micro stories. They're just those little moments in time that allow you to keep your brand at the forefront of everyone's mind in a very relevant and very hopefully personal and emotional way. So, so there's if you build a strategy around looking at macro and micro and 
and you know bringing in different stories in a way that's meaningful i mean that becomes even more powerful yeah no doubt speaking of meaningful stories that are powerful i i know a lot of what you teach is around visual storytelling can you explain what that is in in this context of our conversation we've always been a visual right human brain processes visual 60 thousand times faster than text, right? So we're all about real time now, quick reactions, not digging too deep into potentially, you know, long form content. So, and with social, especially, we've become just this snackable, quick visual content becomes more priority, right? So with that, we need to become smarter at how we look at our omnichannel strategy. Right. And how do you create that short form, snackable, visual, interesting content? You know, there's so many ways that you can take long form content and turn it into something cool. So, you know, right now, let's use example. You and I are doing podcast, right? And it could be video. It could be audio. You could cut up, cut it up in the snackable pieces. You can pull quotes and you could put it across all your social channels. You can create a longer blog post with them. Um, you know, strategies or lessons learned. And then you can use some of that content, especially if it's your customer stories, to then promote your product or drive awareness of your own ecosystem and your own industry, right? So visual became a big part of who you are and snackable and fast and sort of scrollable, right? And so we really need to pay attention to creative elements and how we represent the brand in a visual way. What if I'm not a creative person, though? I mean, our audience is primarily financial advisors. We're talking about analytical thinkers. They tend to be focused on things that can truly be quantified, not a lot of creative amorphous concepts. And a lot of people think of creativity that way. Like, well, I'm not an artist. You know, I'm not a professional marketer. So should that hold them back? Oh, no, absolutely not. I appreciate you saying that I'm a super creative person when we started this interview. But if you really look at sort of my strengths and weaknesses, I've always partnered with a creative, somebody creative, creative director to really bring out visual elements a little bit more. Can I do it myself in amazing tools like Canva? Absolutely. So can your financial advisors. They're literally like foolproof, great visual things that you can create for any channel at any point without too, spending too much time on it. Create a couple of templates, visual templates, reuse them as you move along. So when I look at it and and I get that question, my immediate response, anybody can do it. Anybody can be creative. The hard part is what we believe are our limitations. And what limitations are, especially in B2B spaces, oh, well, we don't sell to, we sell through. So our storytelling is not as exciting or or sexy as it could be in B2C versus B2B, right? And I say it's, it's just such a horrible excuse. Think about everything that that comes into your storytelling. You are sitting with a customer, right? And you're you're advising them on certain things. Probably within that hour, they ask you 10, 15 questions. Write those down. Write those down. And for probably about five of them, and I'm being conservative, you have data, right? So if you have data, throw up a chart. Heck screenshot, you know, the basic Excel spreadsheet that you have on your computer and tell a story around that. It doesn't really matter how, you know, how much you invest in the creative part of it. What matters is what story you're going to tell. I mean, heck, I know, I know influencers who have plenty of resources, yet they take post-it notes, write down 
their quick thought on post-it notes, take a picture of it on their desk and they share. So whether it's data, whether it's stat, whether it's quote, it doesn't really matter. So what I challenge people to do is if you don't think your product is sexy or interesting or have a ton of stories, approach it differently. Look at the perspective of your customer, look perspective of your, of your partner, ask your spouse, hey, I've been talking to you about it for the last five years. If you are to engage my services, what would be the most interesting thing for you? And then visualize it in a snippet, tell a short story, right? So accompanying it and then say, hey, come talk to me. There is more data that I can give you. There is more we can talk about. It's all how you look at it. So this whole excuse of, hey, my stuff is boring or I don't have a ton of stories to tell. It's no, not going to fly. That's right. No, I love your passion around that. And you're right. It may be boring to you. Maybe you've said it a thousand times, but that doesn't mean everybody else has heard it a thousand times. It's something new. And it's funny because I look at some of my blog content and, oh my gosh, there's conversation happening in the industry. I wrote about it. I wrote five blog posts about it 15 years ago. And those basics are still new to a lot of people or a young generation of marketers that are coming on board. And so when I post that, or reposted, I'm surprised how amazing or helpful they think it is. So it's all in your, it's all about perception. <laughs> yes, it is. And, you know, one of the things you pointed out, which I think is extremely valuable and often underestimated is the power of collaboration in this process as well. How do you think that factors into really sparking innovation and creativity? It's everything. You know, it's fascinating to me that a lot of companies, you let's take a very simple example, sales and marketing, right? There is always friction between the sales team and the marketing team. And all marketing is trying to do is help sales sell better. And all sales is saying is marketing, you don't really get me. You don't get what I need produced. And there's never sort of, or very rarely the meaning of the minds that says, listen, it's all about marketing. It's sales marketing. It's not one or the other anymore. It's combined now. So look, let's look at what marketing means for us as a business. When I look at why I was successful in my roles, I tell you one of the top two reasons why I was successful anywhere is because of collaboration. I had to understand the product. I had to work with product marketing to figure out what was, what is, and what's going to come. I had to collaborate with sales I, and make sure, empower them to really drive business. I had to even collaborate with legal and HR to really help them tell their story. Like employer branding is a huge thing. We can spend another hour on that. I had to collaborate with success teams, with solution architects, right? With executives. When you look at your brand and product storytelling, no matter what it is, no matter how big or small it is, you've got to understand how to connect those dots and how to collaborate with everybody. And that's a big part of my day was spend meeting new people and more new people and more new people, not just inside a company I work with, but outside in the industry, because now I can call up anybody and say, hey, I'm missing this. What should I do? What tool should I get? Who should I hire? What do you got for me? And immediately I get all that influx of insights. It's all about making sure you're not sitting at your desk eating lunch alone. That's what it's about. It's about extending your network. Yeah. By the way, I'm going to take marketing. I think I have a marketing department now <laughs> instead of a marketing and a sales team. I love it. So what you were just describing to me sounded a lot like social media. I think a lot of people underestimate how useful it can be for that, don't you think? 
I tell you what, I got on Twitter when Twitter was weird and the connections I made around the world. I mean, it's literally so surreal, Robert. I would be at a conference and I would meet a person and we, after half an hour talking, we're like, wait a second, we've known each other for the past five years, but this is the first time we met face to face because we met on Twitter because we connected around the passion of a particular topic. And you're like, no way, right? So connections now are even easier, right? With remote work and all the tools, heck, we're currently on Zoom, right? I mean, fantastic tool, so much easier. It, you just need to not be afraid to reach out. I mean, I am a person that has no problem dropping a note to somebody on LinkedIn and say, oh man, I just heard your name. And somebody who worked with you, I would love to learn from you. Let's, let's connect. I, and then you offer each other value and you build that relationship that can potentially grow into, I can't even tell you, I have stories and stories of stories, including the, the business acquisition based on, based on relationship. I mean, it's just so cool. It is. And, you know, a lot of people tend to think about social media as just a marketing channel. Like, oh, I, I've got, I just got to use it for marketing. How can I get more business from social media? But they completely miss the fact that the business is a byproduct of the relationships you build. You can't start with the the focus on just getting leads. You have to think, how am I going to engage with the right people in meaningful ways? Because the meaningful connections lead to the business. That's true. And granted, when social just kicked off, right, there was a smaller number of people and those who were thought leaders and who were first to be on there. And so it was kind of like Clubhouse, right? It started with a small number of rooms and you're like, okay, this is cool. And then it was it was noisy. But it is how you use it that's important. And I will say, you know, what I will also tell you is we'll look at ABM right now, right? So there's a lot of ways to approach account-based marketing. But the coolest thing that I've done in partnership with sales is how we approach those relationships. And that starts with, yeah, I may be stalk you, you know, I may be stalking you just to know who you are, what you really need. But the way I build a relationship with you is by giving right? Not, I, I get by giving. So a salesperson would say, oh my gosh, to answer your question, you know, you're looking for some great resources on, I don't know, building advocacy among your employees. Here's a couple of articles in the video we can offer. And, and if you'd like to talk to our own expert, forget salesperson, forget using our product. But if you want to talk to somebody that did it for us, you know, let us know. That's how the relationship, so some of the best ABM I've seen is based on making sure you provide value where it's relevant and timely. That's what builds your business eventually, right? So It does. And especially in the financial advice industry where people have to really trust you. This is just so important. And Ekaterina, I've, I've learned so much already from you. And we usually keep these podcasts fairly short and sweet. I know we could talk all day long. But I really want to find out from you a couple of things. First of all, if people want to learn more from you, about you, where should they go? EkaterinaWalter.com or I am on across social. So ping me, LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever is convenient for you and just connect. And I love connecting with people. I think it's, it's fantastic. Well, I love how accessible you are. Thank you for that. And just on a personal note, too, we haven't asked much about you. We've enjoyed your accent. It's brought a nice flavor to the uh, podcast. Uh, where where do you live? Where are you from? Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, uh, I actually, as yes, the accent is Russian, so I lived uh, half of my life in Russia and half of my life now in the United States. And 
specifically a big chunk of it in Portland and Oregon and absolutely love it here. And that's where my family is. And that's probably where I'm going to retire. And But I am a very international citizen at heart. I love traveling. I've always worked with, with global teams. And like I said, love to connect with people from all over the world. So ping me if you want to connect and I'll be happy to say hi. You know, other than that, I just, I just, I love what I do. And I'm so privileged to do it you know, at a place and in a country that allows me to be my best self. And I'm privileged that I, every day I wake up and I want to go to work. Right? That's, um, it, it's huge, I think. So um, no regrets, living life to the fullest. That's me. Well, we can tell that about you and, and your passion shines through. And we cannot wait to hear you on the main stage at Jolt in May. We're excited to have you as one of our speakers. We don't want to give everything away. But let's leave everybody here today with just a little something. You know, this podcast is Steal My Strategy. So of all the things we've discussed today, maybe there's something we didn't cover that you think is really important and you want our listeners to take away as they steal your strategy. Or maybe it's something we, we talked about that you just want to reiterate as being the most important thing we've covered today. If they take one thing away, what should it be? Well, first of all, I'm psyched um, to be at Jolt. I look forward to amazing event, great speaker lineup. I'm privileged to be a part of that. So super excited about it. I will say that one of the things that I think continues to be underutilized, and I don't care who you are, I don't care how boring or weird you think your product is, it's very underutilized. And it is using video and especially using video to sell. You know, when I engage, you know, as a marketer, I have my whole MarTech stack. Right. So I engage with a lot of vendors, with a lot of advisors, with a lot of consultants and freelancers. And some of the coolest cells that I've seen or pitches that I've seen are a video. So getting an email that says, hey, check out this two minute video that's attached and really talking about how somebody can help me be better or my business be better. It tops everything. Not a lot of people do it. Robert, you will be surprised. So you're a financial advisor. Get out there. Show your face. Show your personality. Show your attitude. Show your knowledge. It doesn't have to be as exuberant as, as I am. You don't have to be, you know, super extroverted. Maybe you're an introvert. But when you get on video and you share a quick tidbit, a quick piece of information, or you do a sales pitch and video, it is so much more. It allows you to establish emotional connection. It allows you to, for other person to get a feeling for who you are that text alone will never do. So get out there, get yourself on video. It doesn't take much. It doesn't, it's not super time. You know, you're not going to spend a ton more time on this, but it just does wonders. I think you're absolutely right. That's an excellent takeaway. And I hope everybody really applies it because there's no doubt the power of it. And you stated it very well. Thank you. Everything you've said today has been enlightening. We really appreciate you being on this podcast. Thank you, Katarina, very much. Thank you for having me, Robert.